You are Locked On Rockets, your daily Houston Rockets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Happy Friday. I would ask you how you're doing. But the odds are, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a fan of the Houston Rockets, I think we all have a pretty good idea. We're all doing quite well today with the Rockets coming off a dramatic and beautiful 135-134 to overtime victory over the two-time defending champion Golden State Warriors at Oracle Arena on Thursday night, punctuated by a dagger three in the final second from reigning league MVP James Harden. So on that wonderful note, Welcome in, for the third time in barely over 24 hours, to another new episode of Locked on Rockets, your home for daily, and sometimes more than that, podcast commentary on all things Houston Rockets basketball. As always, I'm your host, Ben DuBose, Rockets correspondent with Sports Talk 790, the team's official radio flagship in Houston. As we chat this Friday, January 4th, we're going to be discussing many of the same themes that we went over late last night at about 1 a.m., my immediate post-game recap show of the Rockets' 135-134 to 134 win at Oracle Arena over the two-time defending champion Warriors and the Western Conference Finals rematch. My thoughts last night were just based on initially watching the game, the euphoria of how it ended, the significance both for the Rockets as a team. They're 22-15, and 15, but more importantly, they're now 6-0 and 0 somehow without Chris Paul. They've now won 11 of 12 Overall, they're the hottest team in the NBA, and of course, that final shot, the significance for the legacy of James Harden, his potential to win the MVP for a second consecutive year, so many juicy storylines, and of course, I wanted to get something out there immediately. Today's show, on Friday afternoon, now that I've had a bit of time to decompress and also watch the game one more time, I'm going to try and provide some similar analysis, but with a bit more bigger picture themes to it. Not just what happened last night and how did the Rockets, even without Chris Paul and Eric Gordon, get this win at Oracle Arena over a Golden State Warriors team that really was playing as well as they have all season long, or at least close to it. Steph Curry had 35, 14 of 27 shooting. Klay Thompson, who's somewhat underachieved to the same extent, or similar that is, to Eric Gordon with the Rockets, scored 26 on 11 of 20 shooting, 4 of 8 from behind the arc. Kevin Durant had 26, and yet, even with their big guns all playing, yes, they even included Andre Iguodala, Gasp, the guy who you would have thought, going by Steve Kerr's reaction, turned the Western Conference Finals by not being out there, perhaps even more than Chris Paul. Of course, I'm rolling my eyes as I say that. But yeah, their four All-Stars, plus Andre Iguodala, they were all available, all played 34-plus minutes last night. Three of them played 40-plus minutes, and the Rockets still got the win. So there's a lot of immediate euphoria and just a reaction of how in the world did they do this. But in the grand scheme, the Rockets don't just want to beat the Warriors in an early January game. They are 2-0 against them on the season, which secures them at worst a split in the season series. But for Houston, assuming they're right, and at this point, having won 6 in a row, 11-12, there's nothing to indicate any sort of spiraling effect. If anything, it's the opposite. And as long as they're playing to their talent, especially assuming Chris Paul and Eric Gordon get back healthy in the coming weeks, then the Rockets are going to be fine. And ultimately, this season is going to be judged in much the same way as last season's was. Can you beat the Warriors four times out of seven in May? And there's still a ways to go to get there. But for the first time this season, 
it's starting to get to a point where we're not saying, okay, you got to figure out how to just get through the rounds before you get to Golden State. And now I think the Rockets are confident enough and seeing the results to where you feel pretty good that, hey, even though 22 and 15 still isn't quite where you expected to be through 37 games, the trend lines are clearly moving in the right direction and assuming health. I think the odds are pretty good that these two teams end up having another heavyweight bout, a best of seven in May. So to break that down, that's what I'm going to be looking at in today's show, a bit more larger picture with some of the themes that we went through last night, the additions of Daniel House and Austin Rivers to this squad relative to last year, some growth from not just Clint Capella, but also James Harden. And then we'll finish up our episode. We're going to break it up in three segments, as usual, with a bit of talk about the bizarre officiating error when Kevin Durant stepped out of bounds four times but saved the ball. It led to Steph Curry putting the Warriors up with 20 seconds left, if not for Harden's heroics, would have decided the game. I didn't want to discuss it that much last night. There's no point in dwelling on that sort of negativity when the Rockets had that sort of win. But it is a big storyline. It could have made a big difference. So I do want to put some thoughts out there today, which I'll do on the back end of today's podcast. But to lead off, to me, the most interesting theme when it comes to how these two teams, Houston and Golden State, and the two-time defending champions, they're the gold standard for the Rockets, they're the obsession, as Daryl Morey has said in the past. The most interesting takeaway to me is the role of the newcomers, Austin Rivers and Daniel House Jr., Now, certainly those two played well last night. They scored a combined 35 points, 10 of 23 shooting, 6 of 12, 50% from behind the arc, 8 rebounds, 7 assists. House got to the line 9 times and made all 9 of them, more on why and how momentarily. But for now, these are both starters. Long-term, Rivers isn't going to start once you get really one of Daniel House or Eric Eric Gordon or Chris Paul back. Rivers is going to go to the bench. And then when you get both Paul and Gordon back, Rivers is going to go from the number two guard, which he is now, to the number four guard. So while he is important, especially his ability to attack the rim, at the same time, his role is not going to be the same as it was in Thursday's win. That said, you can see what the path is for the Rockets against the Warriors. Because right now, the way the team is currently constructed, those are the two that are most closely replacing Trevor Ariza and Luke Bamute from last season. Now, it's not the exact same formula. Rivers is a guard. Both Ariza and Bamute are forwards. But when it comes to two-way, switchable, versatile players, those are where you're having the most apples-to-apples in terms of minutes replacement. And what's interesting to me is that you can clearly make a case that the 2019 Rockets, if these additions pan out, and yes, you have to point out this is just one game. We're extrapolating a lot from a small sample size. But if their performance Thursday on a big stage, and I think that's part of it, you always want to see with a game like this, how do your newcomers respond to the stage, the moment? And I thought both of them played quite well with Austin Rivers. In yesterday's show with Hunter Atkins, we talked about how his background kind of lends itself to being ready for the moment. And it's something he's done a lot over his career. But if these guys pan out, you could see a case where the 2019 Rockets actually might have matchup advantages relative to Golden State as compared to the 2018 squad. And I know that seems crazy to say because the 2018 team won 65 games and the 2019 team is going to be nowhere close to that. Now, part of it is just because of the slow start. But even with that, there are certain issues with the 2019 team that for the moment, are being masked by James Harden playing out of this world, averaging more than 40 points per game in his last 12. Not every issue that's been around all season long, the defense, the rebounding, 
has been fixed. But for Houston, I don't know that they're necessarily focused on how many games they win in the regular season, other than the context of, of course, they'd like to have home court advantage. And I don't think they're tracking exactly where they rank in defensive rebounding rate or net rating defensively every game. No, for the Rockets, assuming they're right, everything is about how they match up with Golden State. And where Rivers and House make a big difference to me, it's their ability to attack the rim. If you go back to the beginning of the Western Conference Finals last year, that was something that was a big story for the Rockets and Luke Bamute. He was a good slasher over the course of the season, and he was able to get to the rim, sometimes with the ball, but especially without the ball, against the Warriors. It's just because of the shoulder injury or because of some residual mental impact, he missed his layups. He got to the rim. He just couldn't finish through traffic, and sometimes even when there wasn't traffic, he still couldn't hit the layup. It was like there was a mental block, and even though he was supposed to be on offense, a slasher, someone that can be effective without the ball or perhaps in transition, it didn't always work out for Bamute. Last night, it largely did for Rivers and House. They put a lot more pressure, I thought, on the Warriors because with Golden State, they know the way Houston wants to fire up a lot of threes. There's so much length, and they put a premium on closing out hard. And when you play the perimeter the way Golden State does, when you switch to the extent that they do, the counter to that is have guys that are able to attack the switches the ball movement by taking it to the rim and exposing the fact that they are overplaying and they are out of position. Well, last year, the two guys, Ariza and Bahamute, Ariza was not the best off the dribble to begin with, and Bahamute, even though it was supposed to be a strength, for various reasons, it was not. For both Austin Rivers and Daniel House, it is a strength, and not only did they score 35 points combined 10 of 23 shooting, but what was most impressive to me, House got to the line nine times. He made all of them, and I think it reflects how willing he was to throw his body around. He is even more athletic in his mid-20s than in early 30s Trevor Ariza. That is potentially an upgrade, and he is a very good defender in his own right. And at six foot seven, very long, very bouncy, not quite as long as Ariza. And I don't know if House can cover guards as well as Ariza did, but that's where Austin Rivers comes in. And we've seen in his first five games with the team, he's had great moments defensively against Russell Westbrook, Steph Curry, you can't trust Rivers on forwards, in my opinion, but against guards, he's been pretty good. Now, there are a couple of caveats that we need to throw out. For starters, because you can't really trust Rivers to guard as many positions as, say, Ariza and Bahamute a year ago, in the Golden State matchup specifically, it pretty much means, when it matters, that P.J. Tucker has got to be your guy on Kevin Durant. So, can P.J. hold up at 33 years old? I thought on Thursday he did pretty well. Durant, 26 points, but 10 of 23 shooting, just 1 of 5 from 3. It seemed like he was struggling to get good looks against P.J. when it mattered. I think that plays into where the Rockets could be buyers. That was a quote from Gerald Morey after the game. Did a story, a sit-down with Sam Amick of The Athletic, and said he expected the Rockets to be buyers at the trade deadline. They could probably use one more rotation piece for this matchup that's a little bit bigger. I think you feel good about your guards now that you have your original three, Harden, Paul, and Gordon, supplemented by Austin Rivers. I think you could use one more longer 3 and D piece to help you with Kevin Durant so it doesn't have to always be P.J. Tucker, or at least so you have the flexibility to switch and do some different things. Maybe you want to throw in a tuck wagon lineup at times, which we didn't see last night in large part because of how well Clint Capella played. More on him momentarily. But at the moment, it kind of leaves Tucker as your only Durant stopper. So I think that's one thing you have to keep in mind. Last night, P.J. was fine in that role, but it's one game. We'll see what happens long term. 
The other thing is that last night's game was a little bit faster from a pace perspective than way the, the way the Rockets usually play. They usually average about 97 possessions per game. Last night, they were almost at 99. Not a dramatic increase, but without Chris Paul, without Eric Gordon, the Rockets don't have the ability in the half court to out-execute Golden State. In the playoffs, I think they're probably going to try and make it a bit more of a slog because we saw from Golden State last night, they scored 70 in the first half. They scored 15 in overtime. Now, the Rockets did close down a little bit in the second half, limited them to just 49 points between the third and fourth quarters. But Golden State has so many playmakers. If you play at their preferred style, they're probably going to beat you. Not always, because the Rockets, if they have James Harden doing what he did last night with 44, 15, and 10, that can overcome a whole heck of a lot. But can you win four times out of seven that way, expecting James Harden to do that every single night? Probably not. There's a reason why the Western Conference Finals last year, especially Game 4 and Game 5, were a bit of a slog, and that's because that was conducive to giving the Rockets the best chance to win. They needed to muck it up. So last night's game, it played to the strengths of Austin Rivers and Daniel House, both of which, but especially Rivers, can put the ball on the floor even better than Ariza and Bamute a year ago. They're younger. They're more athletic. So it played to their strengths, even though maybe for the Rockets as a team, it wasn't their best recipe to win. It just so happened they did, because that's how ridiculous James Harden was. We'll have to see what happens once Chris Paul and Eric Gordon come back and the pace is a little bit slower. The good news is that 97-99, that's not like a dramatic increase by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't think you can say that, well, Rivers and House just succeeded because the Rockets went through seven seconds or less style. No, it wasn't like that. However, it was a little bit faster than I think the Rockets will play once Chris Paul and Eric Gordon are back and playing against the Warriors, especially in the playoffs. And when the game slows down, that's where especially Ariza was so useful, certainly his half-court defense, but offensively his spacing, he knew exactly where to be behind the three-point arc. He could fire very quickly with his release. Will that hold true with Daniel House and Austin Rivers? I hope it can. Again, it's not like the Rockets played that fast last night. It's more that they went from well below average to just a little bit below average in terms of possessions per game, but it's something to watch. Again, the main thing, it's a small sample size, but trying to project There are reasons that if Daniel House and Austin Rivers, if they give you what they did last night, 39 and 44 minutes respectively, 35 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists, 50% shooting from 3, they're not just going to be fine replacing Trevor Ariza and Luke Bamute. They might even be better. Yes, it's a small sample size, but because they can attack the rim, kind of the soft underbelly of the Golden State defense with how they switch on the perimeter and how aggressive they are closing off on threes, then you could make an argument that at least offensively, the Rockets could be more diverse in 2019 and better equipped to attack Golden State than they were in 2018. Defensively, we'll have to wait and see, but honestly, I thought Austin Rivers and Daniel House did a pretty good job with their assignments last night. I know it was their first time on that stage, but I thought they rose to the occasion. Again, small sample size. They got two more regular season games before we can even talk about a potential seven-game playoff series between these two teams. But so far, so good. You can at least make a case to where the 2019 Rockets aren't just positioned to replicate the formula from a year ago, but they might even be in a spot to exceed it. Stay tuned. Jumping back into the show, Friday's post-mortem on the 135-134 win at Golden State late Thursday night, taking what we learned and trying to apply those lessons to a potential playoff series between the teams, which I think is quite useful because... If any 
game warrants two recaps, this would be the one. The Warriors are the, the gold standard for the current NBA, and especially the Rockets. Odds are these teams are going to meet again, of course, two more times in the regular season, but the odds pretty good that we'll have a rematch of the Western Conference Finals down the line, assuming health. So there's a lot to dive into with these matchups. And I think the newcomers, which we started with, Daniel House, Austin Rivers, the impacts they made in their first game against the Warriors, at least with the Rockets, that is, those are important because those are the new pieces you want to see how they fit in. But I think it's also important to keep an open mind because we talk about, and we've done a lot, trying to replicate the formula that had the Rockets a hamstring away a year ago. We don't need to necessarily fall into the trap that that formula is the only way to beat the Warriors. What you're trying to do is score more points than them over 48, or in the case of Thursday night's 135-134 win, 53 minutes. That's all it comes down to, and there are multiple ways to do that. So if you can see newcomers like Austin Rivers and Daniel House potentially providing upgrades in certain areas to Trevor Ariza and Luke Bamute down the line, the guys whose minutes, based on the roster composition at the moment, they seem likely to take, you need to be open-minded to that. Another area we should be open-minded to is growth within the current team. And James Harden and Clint Capella, these are your mainstays, especially with Chris Paul out. These are your two highest salary players. Harden, 44, 15, and 10, the reigning MVP, should be going for his third straight MVP in fourth in five years. He's ridiculous. Clint Capella, 29 and 21, game high, 46 minutes. He took a big step forward last night as well. The two guys you pay big money to, they stepped up, they delivered. And... They can each give you more in 2019, and this is just one game. Again, we're extrapolating from a small sample size, I'm aware. But you can see things that lead you to believe that in 2019, they might be better positioned, the Rockets collectively, that is, to compete with Golden State, even than in 2018, when they were so close to winning, basically a hamstring away. Let's start with Capella. 29 and 21, 12 of 19 shooting, that's a wonderful stat line. That said, what's so different about Capella now compared to the playoffs? It's hard to put your finger on it. I would say this year it feels like he's made even more progress at finishing near the rim. He's added diversity to his jump hooks around the basket. He looks a little stronger, still just 24 years old, year five. He adds strength every year. But it's not like he was a bad player in the playoffs. Just ask Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert, who Clint Capella got the best of in the first two rounds. I don't think that he's dramatically different in terms of his physical profile from when these two teams played in May. And yet, Clint Capella last night, 29-21, in a game-high 46 minutes at Oracle. If you think back to the Western Conference Finals, one of the issues for the Rockets, and we discussed this in last night's immediate postgame recap, was how hard it was for Clint Capella to stay on the floor. Whether it was the frenetic pace of the games, whether it was Draymond at the five, whatever it may be, he struggled, especially at Oracle Arena, and the Rockets felt they had to go excessive tuck wagon. Now, Capella, when the games were in Houston played a decent bit because at home, a bit of a friendlier whistle. The Rockets got more of a benefit of the doubt, I thought, in terms of the officiating that helped them play to their style. But in Oakland, Capella played just 22, 24, and 29 minutes. That's basically averaging about mid-20s. Last night, he was at 46. I know that includes the overtime, but even if you take that away, he was still over 40. That's massive, because if the Rockets want to muck it up, if that's the strategy, and I still think it is because Golden State has more playmakers, the best way to control pace, make it that half-court slog, as we talked about earlier, that I think once Chris Paul comes back, it'll be a bit more of in this matchup, then you need to get second chances offensively. That's 
where the nine offensive rebounds that Capella got last night play in, and you also need to be able to trust your ability to get defensive rebounds, which Capella had 12 there, 21 overall. And, of course, for the balance of the game, the Rockets, they were down double digits at the half in rebounding. They ended up winning at 48-47. The bottom line is if you want to control pace, you need to rebound the basketball, and that's where Clint Capella being able to stay on the floor really comes into play. Now, what's interesting, you look at what he did against Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns, and you look at the fact that his physical profile wasn't really all that different in the playoffs last year, and you might ask, why didn't Mike D'Antoni try in at least one of these games to leave him on the floor and see what happens? And I think there are two things that are very different this season. First is the stamina. Last year, he was at 27.5 minutes per game in the regular season. Now, he's over 34. He has finally made that big leap to where he is in the low to mid-30s minutes per game consistently, and on occasion, as we saw Thursday, capable of going even low to mid-40s. But the point is, he is now a full-fledged starter by every stretch of the imagination based on minutes per game. A year ago, I do think that Mike D'Antoni thought that there was a point of diminishing returns in regards to his energy level, what he could give them on the glass, and so I think that played into his reluctance to play Capella. The other issue, I think, was his free-throw shooting, because be it the potential for a hack at Capella, or even if it's not just an outright hack, just the fact that he could get hammered if he got the ball near the rim, and then when he was shooting in the 50s, that was a low enough percentage that it made Mike D'Antoni hesitant to put him on the floor because he felt like it it could gum up the offense. Well, since November 1st, Clint Capella is now shooting nearly 63% from the line. He's put in a ton of work with John Lucas and is it ever paying off? Last night he was 5-5, five of five, and of course his biggest was the free throw with a minute left in regulation, bringing it from a 6-point game to a 3-point game. That's what put it in position for James Harden to hit that tying 3 and get it to overtime. So if Clint's work at the free throw line continues, not only is Hacka out of play, because the math shows if a guy's over 60%, it's just probably not worth it, then also I don't think there's going to be a reluctance to give him the ball on the low block, not that you're all of a sudden going to post him up, but there were times last year that I don't even think the Rockets wanted to attempt to pass if they thought the Warriors could foul him before he could go up. This year, there's more trust, and I think that makes it easier for Mike D'Antoni to, by extension, have his own trust in Clint Capella, leave him on the floor, and let him do what he does on the glass, get some easier buckets, and overall, make it easier to muck up the game and play it to the Rockets' pace rather than the preferred breakneck style of the Warriors with all of their playmakers when they're healthy. So I think growth from Clint Capella, that's one thing that's different from, say, the 2018 playoffs. Another, crazy as it is to say, is growth from James Harden. And I know that's almost unfathomable because this is a guy who was the 2018 MVP, but he's better than ever. He's averaging in this current stretch, the Rockets have won 11 of 12, more than 40 points per game. He's tying or breaking records like Oscar Robertson, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry. It's just ridiculous. But just from a technique perspective, he still adds to his game. Even at 29 years old and now being in the NBA 10-plus seasons, it's remarkable. Every year, he seems to add something. That dagger three over Draymond Green and Klay Thompson, that was going to his right. The Warriors did everything right on that last play. They didn't let him go left. They didn't let him get downhill. They sent a help defender. They forced him to his right, which is his weak side. He still hit the three. His last seven games... I believe he's hitting, I'm looking it up now, Harden is averaging about 16 pull-up threes per game over his last seven and shooting 43% on them. That's a staggering figure. 
he's not even getting that many open looks. He's getting some of the fewest catch-and-shoot opportunities in the league. And yet, even though he's taking some of the hardest shots in the NBA, the pull-ups going to his right, his weak side, he's still perfecting and getting better at his craft. And that's important because, as we discussed last year, we said plenty of times, the big shots in the Western Conference Finals were largely hit late in games by Chris Paul and Eric Gordon. Not a shot at Harden, but it's just the reality. Golden State is so long, so intelligent, that they have a way of limiting your plan A and forcing you to something else. And as great as James Harden was, there's a reason why most of the big shots were hit by CP3 and Eric Gordon in the Western Conference Finals. I don't know that he trusted going to, say, the weaker elements of his game, the pull-up threes, crossovers to the right. I don't know if from an X's and O's standpoint, he was ready to deliver with all of those, even in May, to the extent he is right now, certainly in this historic stretch, averaging over 40 points per game in his last 12, which the Rockets have won 11 of. Also, just one mental thing that I really liked from James upon re-watching the game. After he hit that dagger three over Draymond, and of course, he had a couple of moments of celebration. The images of him looking at Draymond on the ground are just iconic. But after taking a few moments to enjoy the magnitude of what happened, he quickly turned the page, realizing that there was still one second the Rockets had to bleed off that clock. They needed a defensive stop. Fortunately, they got it. They forced Kevin Durant into a tough shot well over 30 feet away. But with Gerald Green and Daniel House in the midst of extended celebrations, Gerald had one of the biggest smiles I've ever seen on a human being. You could clear as day see on the television broadcast Harden holding up one finger to Green and House. And no, he wasn't saying we're number one. He was saying there's one second left. Save your celebration until after it's over. And of course, the Rockets got that stop and then they were able to celebrate. But even a year ago, I'm not sure James Harden does that. To see him take ownership, and that's setting up a defensive possession. It's just the continued evolution of a guy who, even at 29 years old, and has now been in the league over 10 seasons, somehow, not only has he not missed a beat, he actually gets even better from season to season. And he's another reason why the 2019 Rockets, no, they're not the same as 2018, but in some respects, they might be even better. It's not going to be the exact same formula as a year ago, but it doesn't have to be. Again, the Western Conference Finals a year ago, look, even if you take out what happened after the unlucky, ill-timed Chris Paul hamstring injury, the Rockets were just up three games to two. And Game 3 in Golden State, they were humiliated. They were down by 40. Game 4 and Game 5, the Warriors had leads in the fourth quarter. The Rockets just made a couple more plays late. And that's great. And while certainly it's closer than anyone ever expected another team to be against the Warriors' most talented team ever assembled, It's not like the 2018 Rockets were perfect. Even that squad with 65 wins had their warps. And no, this year's team is not going to exceed 65 wins. That's already off the table. But in terms of matching up with the Warriors when it counts, last year is not the only formula. What you want to do is score more points than them, no matter how you have to do it. And in some respects, both the newcomers, Austin Rivers and Daniel House, and also the continued evolution of your mainstays, guys like James Harden and Clint Capella, who in some ways are getting even better than they were a year ago, there's reason for optimism. I'm not willing to say that it's clear. After all, this is just one game that we're extrapolating from. Although with James Harden, of course, it's more than one game. This is a historic stretch in which he's breaking records by the night, it seems. Long-held records from the likes of Oscar Robertson in many cases. All I'm saying is that there's a path. And, of course, we'll pay attention to this more, the final two regular season games between these two teams. Rockets only need one of them to clinch the season series. But beyond that, you can see this coming together. 
I still think maybe they need one more 3 and D piece, a bigger guy, to give Tucker some release against Durant, unless I think Gary Clark can become that guy this year. And I think that plays into what Joe Morey said, that they're a buyer at the trade deadline. But other than that, with this group, you can see what the formula is against Golden State, and there's reason for optimism. Today, on January 4th, I think we can leave it at that. Final segment of the show, and I've been delaying this. We've now had, basically, this is our sixth segment. This is our second recap of last night's big win. Yes, I do think beating the Warriors at Oracle on a dagger three from James Harden warrants that. Rockets out just one game back in the loss column of the Warriors in the season standings. So there's something else that happened late in the game that ultimately did not decide the game. That's in part why I tabled it. And also, it's not fun. And especially last night, it was about the sheer joy of winning a game. Some games are bigger than one out of 82. That was one of them. And so I didn't want to dwell on the negativity. That said, the only reason why the Rockets were in a position to lose before that James Harden shot was because somehow the Warriors tied with 25 seconds left, loose ball, It was off of them. Kevin Durant went out of bounds to save it, ultimately ended up in the arms of Steph Curry, who made a 20-foot contested jumper, tough shot, to put the Warriors ahead. The problem, of course, Durant saved it, as mentioned, by being out of bounds. It wasn't even close. No, Durant took four steps out of bounds, and he wasn't even close to the line. And there were two officials in perfect position to see it. It is inexcusable how that happened, and there do need to be consequences. I know a lot of the time... Discipline is handled behind closed doors. This is something to miss something that blatant that if not for Harden hitting an incredibly unlikely shot would have decided the game. Fans deserve better. People that are paying customers, even if they're just donating their time to watch these games on TV, if you don't take that seriously, something that's so blatant, really, I've heard many respected analysts call it the worst blown call they've ever seen just because of how easy it was to spot There need to be consequences. The league needs to send a message that they take it seriously. With that said, mistakes do happen, sometimes even bigger ones, and it is important to note that professional basketball officiating is really, really hard. There are so many things going on on a basketball court at any given moment. These guys are incredibly powerful. It's not as if there's nothing to focus on if somehow you miss that. No, there are a million other things, especially in these scramble situations. It sucks. It almost costs the Rockets. Thankfully, it did not. And by the way, other than Rockets fans, I think the NBA and especially the officials are the most happy that Harden hit that shot because had he not, had a game of that magnitude on that stage been decided by the officials, it would have led every sports and even some news programs today, especially given the NBA's officiating controversies this century. It would have been a major storyline. So the NBA and the officials union, they should absolutely give a thank you card to James Harden for taking them out of the spotlight, at least a little bit. That said, while it didn't cost the Rockets and it didn't decide that game, we shouldn't forget about it because it shouldn't take a team, even even if it's not the Rockets, being victimized to the extent of losing a game like that because of the call before we take action to fix it. We need to be more proactive. Now, my preferred step, and those of you who follow me on Twitter at Ben DuVos probably have a good idea of what I'm going to say, would be for more accountability and especially transparency. The NBA is already doing grading systems for these officials. You see it in the last two-minute reports that come out when the game is within five points in the final two minutes, and of course they'll extend that to overtime. We'll see that today for Rockets-Warriors. The league decides playoff assignments based on grades in the regular season. These things are already being done. What I think would help fans is seeing what that data is. Imagine if we didn't have metrics 
to track players that were publicly available. And I know officials aren't as relevant to players when it comes to who wins and loses games, but can they have an impact? Sure. Look at last night, what almost happened, and look at Game 6 and Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals. Fans who are paying customers, if things aren't going well, they want to see how they can improve their team. They are able to track, 90% of the information is publicly available, and they're able to evaluate and see who's playing well, who's not, maybe what should they do to improve. Since the league already has much of this data on the officials, it would be wonderful if that were publicly available to fans, because at least at that point, it would be trackable. For example, technical fouls. Russell Westbrook leads the league with 12. Once you get to 16, that's an automatic suspension. Everyone around the league, and including the Oklahoma City fans, knows exactly where he stands. That data is public. So no, it's not a surprise. We know that it's coming. With officials, the grading is being done. There's no conspiracy. They're absolutely doing it. You can see in the last two-minute reports, even if you're inclined to believe that it's not as professional as they say it is. No, the last two-minute reports are pretty detailed. They do a pretty good job, and they provide all the videos as well. So I do believe it's being done. What we need is more transparency, because if your team gets wrong, what makes it feel so much worse is wondering, is it even going to make a difference to prevent it from happening again? Because it had the Rockets lost that game last night, that would have been my immediate reaction. As bad as losing that game felt, what are the consequences down the line? How do we feel confident that this is not going to happen again? And that's where transparency comes into play. The arguments against it, and this would be fought over many years, really the entire officiating profession is kind of done behind closed doors. There's a cloak of secrecy to it. And the officials, especially the unions, are afraid that once you go down the slippery slope of making data transparent, we've already seen the pushback over the last two-minute reports. They think it's opening Pandora's box to where, before you know it, fans are way too involved in the process. I don't see that as... A fair argument at all. To me, fans just want to be able to track the data and know that, hey, just as if a player is having a bad season, at some point the numbers become overwhelming to where he's probably going to face consequences. They want to be able to track that with the officials as well, to at least see that it's documented and see there's hope that this doesn't keep happening over and over again. So I don't really respect that argument. However, the reality is we've been through nearly 100 years of professional basketball with things being handled this way. And as far as making more data transparent, that's going to be a long process of collective bargaining. It's not going to happen anytime soon. What I think we should be focusing on in the immediate aftermath of this, why in the world was that play not reviewable? We have the technology. Just a couple of minutes before that, there was an extended stoppage when a ball appeared to be be off of Draymond Green, but they broke it down to grainy footage, zoomed in to see if maybe a rocket had it glance off a fingertip. Ultimately, they decided that was the case based on the trajectory of the ball and gave it back to Golden State. If you have the technology to do that, then why in the world would you not use the technology to say, hey, Kevin Durant was clearly out of bounds with 22 seconds left. This should be Rockets ball, and let's play it from there. Yeah, I know Steph Curry made a shot, but there's precedent for taking away shots. We saw in the Western Conference Finals, there was a play, I believe, in Game 5 in which... Chris Paul made a big shot in the fourth quarter, and it took two or three minutes until the next stoppage. They reviewed it. They found out that it was still touching his fingertips when the light went to zero, and they took the bucket away. So there's already precedent for taking points off the board. There's certainly the technology. So why in the world is that not reviewable? And unlike my goal of making data more transparent for officials, 
I think many of the officials would actually support the effort of expanding replay because it would cover up for their mistakes. I don't think the officials wanted to decide last night's game, which they would have done had Harden not hit that shot. I think whoever missed the call would have felt very bad about it. He would like the idea, the possibility of using replay so that if there is a mistake, he can get it right. They do take pride in their work. And unlike the transparency of data, which is an operation that would take many years collective bargaining to achieve, we see replay expanded with each year. We already have the technology. It gets embraced more and more with each sport by the year. To me, this is what we should be talking about, and it's an easy fix. If we have that technology, why on earth aren't we using it on a blatant play like that, which is Kevin Durant not even being close. I mean, he took four steps out of bounds. This was not even being close, and yet they missed it. It would be so easy. We know exactly when it happened. We know exactly what the result would be, and yet they were unable to do it. It's just ridiculous. If you have the technology and you're going to use replay for some, why on earth would it not be available for that? The same goes for when players step out of bounds on plays they make themselves. We saw that with Giannis last year. I believe it was Milwaukee in Oklahoma City. There was a game winner in which he stepped out of bounds, but they couldn't review. Officials aren't going to be perfect. It's a hard job. We need to give them as much support as we can. And to me, that's what we should be discussing today. The most immediate fix, and it could happen as soon as next season after their off-season meetings, the NBA needs to expand replay so that it can be used for situations exactly like last night. Anyway, with that, I think we can finally put a bow on our recap of Thursday's massive 135-134 win by the Rockets at Oracle Arena in Oakland against the two-time defending champion Warriors. Thankfully, the officiating controversy, while relevant, did not cost the Rockets the game. So with that, I can finally, hopefully get at least a nap and then recharge a bit by Saturday night's late game in Portland, which we'll recap on Sunday morning. Anyway, if you want more content before our next episode, the best place to get it is on Twitter, of course. I'm on there, at Ben Dubose. Show's on there, at Locked on Rockets. Also got a Locked on NBA Net Twitter and Instagram handle with curated feeds from local experts like myself, but across the entire Locked on NBA network covering their team. So if you want outside perspective on the Rockets or other teams around the league, I strongly encourage you to check out that handle as well. Also, email address, LockedOnRockets at gmail.com. Facebook account, LockedOnRockets. Uh, facebook.com slash LockedOnRockets, that is, website, LockedOnRockets.com, all ways you can access our prior content, ask me questions about the team, advertising inquiries, anything we can do to improve this experience for you. Also beyond that, if you'd be kind enough to subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so on and so forth, if you subscribe, you get episodes even before I post them to Twitter, they're delivered to you, you get the alert, and if you'd be kind enough to leave a five-star review, that's how we can look attractive to potential advertisers and keep the business model rolling as the most regular podcast covering Houston Rockets basketball. And while you're at those providers, you can also check out Lockdown Texans, our sister show covering NFL's Houston Texans. They have their big playoff game this weekend against the Indianapolis Colts on Saturday afternoon, so if you want insight on the football side of things in Houston, check out my friends Robert Land and Brian Patterson. Final plug before I go... We use a lot of voice assistant providers. We're working with them to make our shows more accessible. So beyond the usual providers, if you have Alexa or any other voice assistant device while you're driving, working out, whatever it may be, you should be able to just say, play podcast Locked on Rockets, and you'll find our most recent episode that way as well. Anyway, with the plugs complete, this is where we'll leave off. As always, I appreciate you guys so much for listening. Enjoy the start to your weekend with the Rockets coming off a big win over the Warriors, and then come back Sunday when we analyze whatever happens when the Rockets play their next game at Portland on Saturday night. Until then, take care, and thanks again for listening to me here at Locked on Rockets, your home for daily coverage of Houston Rockets basketball.